Hey, welcome to Access. John here. This week, while I was preparing for my message, I remembered a question I once asked when I began studying the Bible. Why are there four books of the New Testament that each talk about the same thing? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each talk about the life and ministry of Jesus, so why are all four included? Well, I wanted to talk about this in my sermon this week as I introduced the book of John. There simply just wasn't time. So instead, I've included a devotional that you can find on our website or church app entitled, Why Four Gospels? Today we're going to begin our study on the book of John and talk about a monumental truth about Jesus. So if you've got a Bible handy, turn to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and get ready because this message is entitled, Visualizing the Invisible God. This week, my boys, Pete and Christian, will be turning 3 and 5. And they're getting to the point where they're asking a lot of questions, Christian especially. So for example, just the other day, my soon-to-be five-year-old son, Christian, heard me say the word paradox to his mother. And he came up to me and asked, Daddy, what does paradox mean? And I told him, um, well, son, a paradox is something that is and it isn't at the same time. It's, um, it's when two opposites meet. Um, you know what? Why don't you go ask your mother? She has a good answer for that. (laughs) That's a hard question, especially for a five-year-old. I mean, answering that to where they can understand is difficult. Well, my boys are beginning to get really curious, and what's more is they're constantly exposed to the concept of God. We pray regularly before eating, even though they don't yet know why. Uh, We consistently take them to church and to Sunday school. Aaron and I have had hundreds of conversation, uh, discussions really about, about God and, and it's all in the presence of our boys. And I know the day is coming where they're just going to flat out ask me, Daddy, who's God? And we talk about him all the time. Who is God? And I've struggled with how I'm going to answer this very important question. And I think the reason this is so difficult is because they know all about Spider-Man. They know all about the Transformer Bumblebee, and they're constantly exposed to pictures of them. If they ask me who's Spider-Man, I could go and show them a picture. So they they get that a lot with cartoons and things. Uh, In fact, my son Christian recently drew a picture of Spider-Man, and I have to say, I'm not just bragging on how great my kids are, which they are, but it's pretty good. I mean, it was easy easy to to distinguish who he drew. But what kind of picture can I paint when they start asking me questions about God. And so I guess that's my question for you today. If you had to draw a picture of God for someone who didn't yet know him, what would your picture look like? You know, people have all kinds of images of God. Some people picture a man with a long white beard and a flowing robe. He's very weak and frail moving about. Some people picture a Zeus-type figure with lightning bolts in his quiver ready to hurl him down at the slightest act of rebellion. Some people attribute him to different kinds of animals like a decorated monkey or an elephant man. Still others picture God as a man sitting cross-legged in solemn meditation. So what does God look like? More than that, what is God like? How can we know that what people paint, the picture people paint about God is, is really genuine or if it's just a figment of somebody's imagination. Some people might argue that God is whoever you think he is. Thus, some people arrive at the only conclusion left to them that they, in fact, are God. 
Now, it's important that we get a picture of God that we receive from the Bible and not somewhere else. What I've come to discover from reading the Bible is that the image that I had of God wasn't necessarily a biblically correct one. And so it's had to, I've had to adjust my, my understanding of, of who God is and, and maybe what, even what he looks like. You see, we all have an image of God in our minds. And much of the time, our image derives from the relationship, I believe, that we have from our earthly fathers or lack thereof. For example, if your father was cold and harsh and had violent fits of rage, then you're most likely to adopt an image of a, of a heavenly father that, that matches up with that of your earthly father. If your dad was the kind uh, of person who was very kind, he was gentle, and he practically let you get away with murder, your view of God will likely be the same. Well, if your dad was absent and you never had a relationship with him, then you're most likely going to develop an idea of an obscure God out there in the distance who has relationships with a lot of people, but not necessarily with you. Well, in today's text, the Apostle John paints a picture of God for us. And what he essentially tells us is, if you want to see God, go no further than Jesus Christ. You know, I think in church we often ignore how bold of a statement this is. And before we go into depth in what John wrote about Jesus, let me first give you a little bit of history on the book of John and explain why it is that he has the authority to speak on behalf of Jesus in such a way. The popular belief among scholars is that the Gospel of John was written somewhere around 85 to 90 AD, which would have made John the last living disciple of Jesus. And at this point in history, John and the remaining followers of Jesus had experienced or witnessed Christian persecution under the Emperor Nero and were now living under the time period of the persecution from the Emperor Domitian. Now, it's not clear whether John wrote this letter immediately before being exiled to the Isle of Patmos or sometime after. One thing that is clear, however, is because of who John was and his association with Jesus and the, and the person that he stood, uh, really the pillar that he stood on in the church that people put him up on, he suffered heavy persecution under Roman rule. And when he wrote this letter, the church was full of second and third generation Christians. And because of the state of affairs in the world, there probably weren't many first generation Christians left. Now, because there weren't many first generation Christians left, the people who personally knew Jesus, that made what John had to say about Jesus extremely important. Even if he hadn't been the only living disciple of Jesus, which scholars believe he was, he was undoubtedly the disciple who was closest to Jesus. In Jesus' inner circle of disciples, there were 12 men. Inside that circle were three men that went with Jesus everywhere, Peter, James, and John. Well, inside that circle was what I believe to be Jesus' best friend, John. Now, I, I realize that sounds incredibly offensive, and you might be thinking, well, that just doesn't sound right, because we don't like the idea of someone saying, well, Jesus loves all of us, yeah, he just likes me best. But John consistently refers to himself throughout his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which in truth was more of a way of having humility in his writings than anything else, but it bears weight in the Jesus narrative. John was the only disciple who risked his life by standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus was being crucified. Keep in mind, there weren't any shortage of crosses when Jesus was crucified. That's why all the other disciples ran. They could have easily thrown John up next to Jesus but because of the love that John had for Jesus, he was there regardless. Or rather, I should say, because of the love Jesus had for John, and he understood it. 
Jesus only charged one disciple to care for his mother after he, he was crucified um, and he resurrected and after he ascended into heaven. And that was John. My point is, is that in all the people in the world, I don't believe anyone knew the nature and character of Jesus better than John. When John wrote this letter, Satan had begun spreading false doctrines about Jesus throughout the church. And, uh, for example, Jesus was just a man, or that Jesus was fully God and not a man, and thus all matter uh, was evil. Every, every bit of flesh was evil, and so we had to punish ourselves. Or, or that in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ, one must first become a good Jew and follow the law. And because the church was full of second and third generation believers, there weren't many people who could speak with authority as to what sound doctrine was and what sound doctrine wasn't. And so John, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, was prompted to give an account of the life of Jesus from the men who knew him best. He addresses this letter to the church. And he clearly gives his purpose for writing this letter at the end of his gospel when he wrote in John 20, verses 30 through 31, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So picture just for a second that John had been directed by the Holy Spirit to give an account for Jesus. What in the world would he say? What would he write about the man who turned the world upside down? He could have begun his account of Christ in thousands of different ways. What was the best wording to give the church a picture of who Christ is so that they can find life in him? Picture John dipping his quill in the ink and moving it to the papyrus and writing these words. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side. 
has made him known. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we just ask that you would just enable us to understand this text. Help us to see the message that John is trying to portray and, and help us, Father, to receive it and understand, God, how it applies to us today. We love you and we thank you, Father, for this wonderful writing and, and just ask, God, that you just reveal yourself through it. All these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in this passage, John shows that Jesus is God and that he has done what no other could do. Think about how bold a statement like this is, that if you want to see Jesus, if you want to see God, all you have to do is look at Jesus. If what John is saying is true, then that would mean that thousands of other religions in the world, for example, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, Taoism, even atheism, which is a religion, they're all wrong. John is saying, if you want to understand who God is and what he's like, his nature, his will, his temperament, you need go no further than Jesus. Jesus himself says in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How does a man get away with a statement like that? John explains that this incredibly bold statement is true because Jesus has done what no other man in history has done. He quickly distinguishes Jesus from every other person in the world by saying, in the beginning was the Word. This draws up imagery that reminds us of, of the words that are said in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Also notice that in your Bibles, uh, the term Word is capitalized. That's not an error. It's not a typo. That's on purpose. The verbiage used for Word comes from the Greek word logos, which means the spoken word of order in creation. So what he says is the logos, the spoken word, was with God and he was God. And just so that we don't get an abstract view of what the logos is, in verse 3, John says, he was with God in the beginning. So Jesus is greater than all because he's where nobody else was. He was with God in the beginning. Muhammad didn't exist before creation. Buddha wasn't there. Moses didn't give God pointers on how to form the earth. Jesus, and only Jesus, was there. In verse 6, our author calls out a man for a specific purpose of establishing Jesus' credibility. He calls out John. Now, the author was not talking about himself, uh, for when he refers to himself in his gospel, he uses the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, our author, is referring to John the Baptist. Now, why of all the other men this author could call out, why did he make special mention of John the Baptist? Well, good question. If you understand the context of John the Baptist's life, you might begin to understand why he was such an important man. You see, God sends a message to Israel through the prophet Amos because the people don't seem to have an appetite for God's word. He tells them in Amos 8, 11 through 12, The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine throughout the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. 
You see, what God promises through the promise of prophet Amos is exactly what he does between the Old and New Testament. For 400 years, God is silent and he does not speak to mankind through a prophet or through any other means. Which, if you want to put that into perspective, the United States of America has only been a nation for roughly 241 years. So picture an additional 160 more years of silence from God on top of how long our nation has existed And then you might begin to understand how horrible this might have been. Then came John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, a man sent by God after 400 years of spiritual drought, proclaiming the message of repentance and to prepare the way for the Lord's arrival. John the Baptist was a very big deal. More than just being a messenger after a spiritual drought, John the Baptist was what we believe to be the representation of Elijah whom God promised would return through the prophet Malachi in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and 4 verse 7. Jesus himself confirmed that John the Baptist was the promised Elijah who came to testify about him. John says in verse 15 that even John the Baptist or the promised Elijah recognized that Jesus was greater than than him because he says he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me the apostle john also calls another man into light as he talks about christ apologize for jumping around i have to do this to make my point in verse 17 he says the law was given through moses grace and truth came through jesus christ well in the book of hebrews the author conveys the message that i also believe that john is presenting when he says that jesus is greater than moses In Jewish tradition, he who comes first is actually greater. Think of it this way. In a person's mind, um, whoever was a senior in high school when they were a freshman will always be a senior in their mind because they graduated first. They can be 70 years old, but they will still think those other people as better than themselves because they simply came first. Well, Jesus tells his listeners in in John 8, 58, Truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, we'll go back, let's go back. Before Abraham was, I am. Now the message John is conveying is that Jesus has the credibility of being God because he's greater than all others. Thus he carries more authority. He was first. Do you remember when Jesus is transfigured on the mount in the presence of Peter, James, and John? Who came to stand with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. Why these two men? Well, because they were servants of God who were also representations of the law and the prophets. Jesus is greater than the the law. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than all. Think of it this way. The son of the house will always be greater than the servant. The servant can proclaim the law that the master of the house dictates, in this case the Torah. But the son has the authority to supersede and proclaim uh, an even greater testimony. So, for example... If the servant says, the master says everybody has to wear yellow socks on Thursday, he can convey that message appropriately. But if the son comes around later and says, no guys, we're not going to wear yellow socks on Thursday, but instead all week long, then he alone has the authority to do that. Which consequently sheds a whole new light on how Jesus says on multiple occasions, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, because the son is greater than the servant. To say if you want to get to know God, you need to look no further than Jesus is an incredibly bold statement. But John gets to make it because he says Jesus has done what no other could. 
Jesus shows that he is God and that all creation was done through him. Now, I realize we're bouncing around a little, but I'm doing that to make the points I believe Jesus is making in this passage. In verse 2, John says, The spoken word of God, or the logos, was with God in the beginning. Now, remind me, how did God create the world? When everything was void and shapeless and dark, how did God bring about creation? He spoke. The spoken word of God, or the logos, was how God took something shapeless and void and brought it to life. Which corresponds to what John said in verse 3. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is the manifestation of God's spoken word. He's the logos that God used to speak the world into existence. Which if that's really true, then we should be able to see Jesus in creation, right? Does that mean we should be able to look at a mountain that bears resemblance to Jesus' face? I once told a story of a woman who sold a grilled cheese sandwich that had the face of Jesus on it, which actually happened, um, but it didn't happen for $28,000. That's what I reported, but it turns out um, the face of the Virgin Mary sold for $28,000, not the face of Jesus. But hey, man, there's there's money in uh, grilled cheese sandwiches, so let's get some bread and some butter and some cheese. Maybe we can make some money. But really, I mean, this is kind of ridiculous. If Jesus is in the world, wouldn't we see him all over the place? I mean, think about it. If, if, if he was the author of creation, if, if everything was done through him and for him, wouldn't we see more of Jesus? Well, I love the chapter in John Ortberg's book, Who Is This Man?, that is entitled The Man That Just Won't Go Away. He says, most people who rise to power have the most influence when they're alive. And when they die, that influence rapidly declines. But Jesus' influence was relatively small whenever he was on the earth. However, after his crucifixion, his influence continued to skyrocket. Where Jesus may have only influenced a few hundred people in his day, 2.2 billion people claim to be a follower of Christ today. You can't leave your house and have a relationship with another person without being reminded of this man. His presence is unavoidable. Kings and rulers generally name cities after themselves so they can be remembered. For example, Alexander the Great named cities Alexandria. Caesar named several cities Caesarea. However, when Jesus' earthly ministry was underway, he had no place to lay his head. Much less did he ask that a city be named after himself. Yet today, thousands upon thousands of cities are named after the influence of Christ. Corpus Christi, for example, the body of Christ. You can't look at a map without being reminded of this man. Reigns of kings were typically how a person was able to establish a timeline to mark the calendar. And to think that Jesus imposed himself on others that they would use him as a timetable is laughable. Yet even today, the way that we measure years is set by the birth of Christ. You can't date a check without being reminded of this man. Kings and rulers would name children after themselves to extend their family line and and, and to show their great power. For example, Herod named several of his children Herodias. Yet names like Herod and Caesar and Nero today are only used for dogs, pizza parlors, and casinos, if at all. But Jesus, on the other hand, never married and never had any children. 
He didn't encourage people to name children after himself. Yet the most common names that we use to name our children are of Jesus and his disciples. Different characters from the New Testament. You cannot call your child by name without being reminded of this man. His name is everywhere you look. It is by his name that desperate people pray, grateful people worship, and angry people swear. He really is the man that won't go away. You know, Jesus' fingerprints, they're all over creation. All over history because history is just that, his story. But here's the best part. Jesus shows that he is God and that he reveals the Father to us. John says in verse 14, The Word, or the Logos, became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. He says in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. John addresses what most people would likely shy away from. He says, Okay, guys, God is invisible. In fact, no one's ever seen him. And people might say, well, if I can't see it, then I won't believe it. And John says, well, hold on, you didn't let me finish. No one has ever seen God except God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. In other words, only God has seen God, and he has come to show us God. He came to earth to show us God and to reveal himself to us. Let me tell you why I believe this is so powerful. Because we've never seen God, we often conjure up several images that are incorrect. Like I said, maybe we think of him as an old, old man with a long white beard and a, or a lightning bolt-wielding psychopath. However, if you want to see God, or even better, to understand what God is like, all you have to do is read about Jesus. We have the image of God in our Bibles. So the person who's caught in their sin and they're looking for an escape. Somebody who's exposed before the world. God is the one who draws a line in the sand and says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. He's the one that turns to you and says, hey, where are your accusers? Have they left? Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. For the person who feels like an outcast because of what you've done, or maybe who you were born to, or maybe it's the, the, the place that you live, God is the one who makes that special trip to wait for you by the well. He's the one who speaks to you when you don't expect Him to. He's the one who speaks to you when no one else will. He's the one who shows you that you're not an outcast, but that you've been chosen to do great things. In fact, he's going to do great things through you. For the person who's angry at God and is accusing him of all kinds of wrongdoing, then God is the one that stays silent before his accusers. For the person who's simply lost and is searching for a way home, he is the one who would sacrifice himself just so that you might be healed. If you want to look for God, if you want to see him, look no further than Jesus. The nature of Christ is the nature of God. Some may wonder, well, if the world was created through him, why, doesn't the, why didn't the world recognize him, as it says in John 1.10? And I think the answer to that question is because the world already has 
images of what we think God looks like. Thus, when he showed up, they didn't recognize him. But couldn't the same be said for us? I can tell you my perspective on God has certainly changed because I've been reading my Bible. We grow up in a world that bombards with images of God that simply aren't true. And the only way we're going to be able to reclaim the right image of God is by reading the Bible and seeing God through the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, a lot of people think of Jesus as that sweet little baby Jesus who never never could do anything wrong. Maybe not do anything wrong, but could never be offensive. But if you read through the Gospels, especially through the book of John, as we're going to see, Jesus can get pretty offensive pretty quickly. He spoke the truth. But also Jesus was full of grace. So back to my original question. How do you show someone who doesn't know God what God looks like? I'm anticipating the day when my boys come to me and ask, Daddy, who's God? We talk about him all the time. Who is he? I think when they ask me, this is what I'm going to say. Son, do you remember when you fell and you scraped your knee? And rather than telling you to get up and get over it, Daddy got down on on his hands and knees and he inspected your cut and he treated it and kissed it. Do you remember the times when you were lonely and even though Daddy had a thousand other things that he'd rather be doing, Daddy chose to instead spend time with you? Do you remember when you got so angry at Daddy that you told him that you hated him and you wanted a different Daddy? And do you remember when your anger finally subsided that your daddy wrapped his arms around you and he hugged you as if nothing was ever wrong? That's because daddy has unconditional love for you. And make no mistake, daddy is selfish to the core. If it were up to daddy, daddy would only take care of daddy. Daddy didn't even know how to love you until daddy found the love that he was looking for in Jesus. So that unconditional love that Daddy gives you isn't really from Daddy. It's from Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus is God. So son, you see, if you've seen the unconditional love of Jesus and Daddy, you have seen the Father. If you want others to see God, you can't do it by painting a picture. But you can do what Jesus did. Jesus came to earth to reveal God to us, and he did that through the love that he had and the sacrifices he made for us. It is paramount that we understand what John was communicating, that Jesus is God, an equal part of the Trinity. Only when we acknowledge this truth can we experience the love that God has for us, because until we do, we will never understand the full weight of what Jesus did on the cross. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Once we experience the love from God, we can learn to love others the way God loves us through his Son. And once we begin to love others the way that God loves us, then we can show the world what God really looks like. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. 
Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.